This is Rob Tebbett for Boxing Social in association with Betfred. Real privilege to be joined here today by middleweight legend, light heavyweight legend, all-around boxing legend. It's the executioner, Bernard Hopkins. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm still ducking and punching, man. I'm doing great, um, you know, in spite of this pandemic and a lot of issues going on. But, you know, as um, long as you can see the next day and, and, and look forward to the future, hopefully things will get better. What have you been doing to occupy your time? Well, a lot of housework. I became a, I became, I became an amateur um, remodeling um, experience, right? Because it's been an experience for me. But let me tell you something. Like, been been active. I've been active. And and, and the key thing is, I think that anybody that um that can understand listening to us and 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 realize that you must stay active you must stay um mentally active and, and and just do what you can and and of course be conscious of of, of the safeties that you know require for us to to follow and, and you know what things will pass but we must learn from from yesterday to be prepared for tomorrow and, and that's that's how i look at preparing um being home um enjoying you know my 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 fruits of my labor that I really didn't have a chance to do in many, many years. And I'm talking about for a long, extensive time, like a month at home for me. And I'm pretty sure you can relate to this without flying from here to that part of the country or that city or state. It's been, it's, let me tell you something, it's been, it's been a bittersweet and it's been more sweet than bitter. Yeah, I agree with that. You make a good point. We're usually traveling around with the media. And I think initially being home was really nice. And then I've got kind of the itch to go back to work. But also, I, I want to make the most of things while they're, while they're like this. So are you back in Philly right now? Yes, as we speak. Yep. What's it like being back in Philadelphia? You just mentioned it after well, all of these my, years. My, my, let me tell you, my, uh, when I say favorite, I have a handful that I can rely on anytime I need some good food for my body. Um... And that's where I'm at at Cafe Lamont at Fifth and, and, and Brown, um, not too far from my uh, place where I stayed in Philadelphia. So this one I'm at, sitting outside, it's really lovely out here. It's an overcast. Um, I have my old school, you know, an older person got to have an old school Chevy Chevelle. That looks great. My Chevy Chevelle 396-67. Um, which is two years after I was born in '65. So listen, I got I, I'm do, I'm doing I got the great beard. I got the old school car out. I got the they got the window open here in, in, in the restaurant at Philemon, and we just we just having a good time, man. That you know they've been they've been doing curbside like most of the nation. And, and let me tell you something, man. Glad to be out around friends and and and, and people. People uh, has that energy, whether you know them or not. The energy of being around people and feeling that, that that humanity and the human spirit just interacting, I think that's no medication can can um I guess can actually match that in any way. And that, that, that's that's the word I'm using for it can't match that that human human contact and instincts of having conversations, even with strangers. Hey Bernard, how you doing? You know, it's been a long time. I mean that type of interaction I think it's healthy for all of us. How different is Philadelphia compared to the Philadelphia that you grew up in? Oh, a lot different. I mean, yeah, of course, the time is different. 
And um, I, when you look at the, the developments that's been happening and the change um, for, for, you know, reasons of, of, of positive movement and change and, and, and also um, not leaving anyone behind. And that's always been a, a, a controversy or a debate that's still uh, is hot like it was yesterday now in Philadelphia. And, and, and we're talking about justification. We're talking about, um, you know, those who, who can um, elevate themselves to be at certain level and live certain places in life um, in the big city of Philadelphia and those who just want a chance to be able to share the same fruits of the labor. And that that's like a tug of war. But let me tell you something. I can say, being a, a, an advocate for, um, I would say, the unfortunate or the less um, noticeable people of, of, of humanity in any place in the world, especially the United States, where I got a voice. And I say that because I got a voice and I've connected myself to Philadelphia when my career started and when my career ended and everything in the middle. So uh, I get a lot of advice from from, from people, whether they're politicians, non-politicians, or, 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 or people of, of, of communities, of, of black happenings and things like that to come out and support certain things. And I can't support everything that I don't feel passionate about, but I do get those requests. And I have a team that, that you know, sort of sort things out, which is best for me. And then I make my decisions. And sometimes I'll, I went against my team and it was a great thing because I thought it was the right thing to do. And I've been right uh, 90% of the time. And it, it just, listen, man, there's a lot going on. As you know, um, you're part of this world. Um, maybe not part of the problem, but you can be part of the solution. And that's with, with anybody that's, that's brown, that's, that, that's, 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 that's white, that's in the middle, that's, that's you know, black and, and, and with religion and doesn't matter um, what lifestyle you live is your choice and, and you deserve to be able to be happy and deserve to make that choice. It has to be a moment where we all need to take a deep breath. Biob, I've lost you. There you go. <laughs> we all need to take a deep breath. Yeah, I had a, a decline, a phone call was coming through. No we problem. all need to take a deep breath and understand and be real serious about it and look forward to at least get ready to let the next generation we must teach the next generation I don't know if it's too late I don't like to think negative like that but we do must understand we have to play catch up right now I think we're behind the eight ball and but we're not out we're behind the eight ball and what we need to do that's the people I think and I spoke about this yesterday. That's why I'm being long-winded. I'm, I'm not going to make it the whole interview. But let me tell you something. We need to play catch-up right now and win the confidence somehow with the new generation that's protesting, that's voting more than ever, and understand that, in a way, we failed them. How we interact, how we treated history has failed them. No, seriously, it's my opinion. You know, I don't want to make this a political conversation, but I think history has failed based on the promise. And that's where you don't get the respect 
from this generation that inherit. They inherit it. They inherit it's just passed down by things that wasn't changed or handled at that moment. It lingered, it lingered for decades. In some cases, well, I say centuries. And now they hit a boiling point. And every good and bad thing that happens in life has a ending, has a boiling point, has a ending of the grand finale. And that's what I think we had on a, on, on a political statement that can be taken that way, but more of a, a, a humanity. I, I'm not speaking as a political figure of any sort, but that's what's being discussed now in Philadelphia. And I've been a part of, of, of not much as marching, not much as, and I'm not saying it's wrong, not much as protesting, but doing interviews and being on local network TVs and radio stations because of my experience, and, and I'm open to speak about it, on, 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 on the, the unfairness and the uneven playing field of racism, which is a big, big topic that it didn't push the pandemic as a second conversation in the world right now, especially in the United States. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but this is a... A, a, a real issue that's at the forefront right now. And I don't believe it's going, the marches might die down, which is seem to be happening in every city, except Atlanta, Georgia. You know what just happened there. So I'm letting you know I'm in the know. But I, I, I let me tell you something. This be a year 2020 that no one will ever forget. I agree. And um, just to give you a bit of an insight as to I'm from just outside London and, and it has been the same over here in the UK, the talk of inequality and rising up against oppression and the Black Lives Matter movement has knocked the pandemic off the front pages, which when you consider how serious the pandemic has been, just shows you how much people are paying attention to that, which is fantastic. In your position, you, you mentioned the fact that you, I mean, you really have been there. You've been in trouble as a young man you've come you've turned your life around you've always been you've always been willing to speak out and speak on, on issues that affect yes. all kinds yes. of people what does it mean for you now at this point in your life to to be able to do that and to be able to give stuff back to the community considering when you started i mean i'd imagine that would have just been a pipe dream it's my second career now and i was groomed early as you mentioned to be in this position and with the respect of what I've accomplished in my life and, and even my personal life, as you mentioned, that is called credibility. And that credibility is starting to be seen and talked about even in Hollywood, that a docu-series has been put together. I filmed, I did two films or two tapings rather, one before the pandemic and one recently uh, same producers, and we got a few more to do. So it'll be about a year in before we finish. And let me tell you, I have a story to tell, but I also have an agenda. And let me tell you my agenda, because I have a lot of fans in, in the UK, as you know. I want to make people realize that you always have to be conscious of your decisions that you make because that
that was a good part of me being who I became. Once the value that I realized that it was important for me for a legacy before my legacy, that kept me out of anybody's jail or penitentiary 30 plus years with a legacy behind me. Let me, let me tell you, I'm not that lucky to wake up like this. <laughs> I didn't wake up with these accolades. I had to earn them. And listen, all lives matter. But you must deal with the lives that's being jeopardized right now. That political statement has and will, in some cases, rub people wrong because they're not looking at it from the way I'm looking at it. And that's cool because that's why we had this a great, great, I guess, one of the five pillars of this country is to be able to be in a disagreement, but also have the right to feel the way we feel. Beyond that, if it's negative, now it becomes something different. But I tell you, I don't think one person or one political or non-political person or act will change overnight, which has been there for centuries. But when can change, what can change? is now, in 2020, the generation that's living now. Because the generation, think about this, man. You go back to the fundamentals of school. You look at the first graders, or looking at the second graders. The second graders are looking at the third graders. The third graders are looking at the fourth graders. The fourth graders are looking at the fifth graders. They go all the way up to college, man. They are watching. They are watching the next movement. So whether you start from the millennial era of now on back, which is my daughter is 21. She's not considered that millennial, but she's on a cuff. She's looking at everything they're doing. She's in New York College. She's a junior right now. She's looking at all this. She's community involved. She's, she's bright. She's smart. She's right in the city that's huge, that's big. This, that has a lot of multicultures there, and she's learning a lot faster than I even imagined based on everything that's happening, whether it's the lockdown, whether it's justice, equality. Listen, we got a lot of work to do. And let me tell you something. It ain't going to happen overnight because it's power that is a group in a mindset out there that would Listen, they would do anything and everything to keep that power. And let me tell you, that power is real. And like George Floyd had that police officer on his neck for eight plus minutes, for 1,400 years, it's been on the neck of poverty, discrimination, murder, unjust rules and legal I guess laws that been target one particular group of people. This thing is huge. This thing is not overnight. This thing has been planned way before you and I. This 
must be taught and handled and something must take place to try to change that stigma and 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 and, and change it got to come to a point of some resistance and this is the resistance that we are getting negative and positive that I believe need to happen one way or the other to get the attention from both sides that we have to come to a peace treaty and it ain't going to just be talking and marching. It has to come with action. Laws has to be now being discussed about the policing, the funding, the millions of dollars of funding. Now, do we need the police? Absolutely. Do we need some checks and balances to balance things out? Absolutely. But you don't need 100% going to one particular issue. And that's been the problem. You must take from each individual program that supports everybody or put all those things that need to be adjusted. Take that money, take that resources, take that vote and put it in a positive way, not in the politician's pocket, not the wasted but you must put it where it benefits us. It's very well said. As I say, you're always you're always somebody who, who voices your opinion, and I think you come across very well there. Um, that wasn't something that we planned at the start of this interview. Just to give people a bit of context of, of the interview, I've, I've met Bernard on several occasions in Las Vegas on our, our various trips and travels, and this is the first time that we've sat down to do a, I guess, call it an extended interview. Um Kind of ties in hand in hand. Really, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm really apologize for changing the format, but I just had to get that off my chest. Absolutely no problem. Absolutely no problem. It, it ties in nicely with kind of what we wanted, what I wanted to start talking about. Something that I've never spoken to you about, which was how how your time in the correctional facility helped change you, and obviously through boxing, and really just out of nothing else other than the interest of what it was actually like to box in prison. Let me, let me tell you, if you see these videos that I have, that many people want them. I, I put about one or two, maybe one on Instagram about a couple of years back. You would be like, Bernard, this is like literally I'm in the ring with inmates all around the ring. We had an inmate referees, inmate judges, so I don't know if they got it right or wrong, but depending on who was favored and who you was buddies with, because it was all in-house. But let me tell you something. When I look at that now, 30 years later, I came home in 1988, as you talked about um, many times on coming home, we're losing the first fight. I got the love back in prison because I needed something to do after a year went by. And I just got tired of just being on another block. And that another block means if I'm on B block, I'm going to get on C block. I got friends all over every block. People see you hang out before the count. You got to get off that block when you get a write-up because you're not supposed to go on the wrong block anyway. Anyway, 
I wanted to get off the block to go to another block, and I couldn't do it this time, this day. And I literally was forced to go where I was supposed to be going, and that was the gym. Because they had gym hours where they had basketball in the same facility. They had boxing. They had weightlifting. So this big gymnasium in state prison called Greater Ford State Prison, get down to the gym. I see trainers, inmate trainers. They had a, some ropes, a mat, flimsy ring, boxing gloves, heavy bag. And I'm looking at a guy to my, yeah, he okay. This guy was well-known, real respectful in the jail. And nobody really wants to spar this guy. Well, I was considered a hater back then. That's what they call now. So consider me back then as a hater. Like, oh, he ain't really all that, right? So I went in there. I didn't get knocked out. But I got a lesson that you must be in shape and you must be ready when you open your mouth to say someone has nothing. So I went in there like he's nothing, that type of mentality. He's okay. Well, you get in there with him. And in that particular surrounding, you can't call nobody's bluff and say something and don't go in there. You're going to have problems. So it was that mantra thing, too. And it was that thing like, all right, put the gloves on. You know, put the cup on, put the gloves on. We didn't have mouthpiece, but we did. We used toilet paper. They wet it and let it get lost. And, and we used that as mouthpiece around our mouth. It's crazy when you see this story, man, on film. Like, literally, I can make that right now and show you how we use mouthpiece because you ain't worrying about the bottom part. You're worrying about the front part where you want to protect. So we had our toilet tissue paper, rather, mouthpiece. And I went in there, and let me tell you something. We went four rounds. They had four-minute rounds, not three-minute rounds. Jailhouse rules. And we pucking for the first two rounds. I got tired. Ever since... That lesson of being in condition and never getting caught off guard. I took that mentality of that whooping I got. Man, country, his name was country. We became best friends. I got a photo of me and him with a band around our hands, which was a jail band with our name on it and our number on there. And we posed like this. I had that picture today. It's a Portaroy picture. And that was my sparring partner. We became so close. I left out before him. He left out. He got killed within a year of being on the street. He couldn't, couldn't focus out here. He, he, people were scared of him, and they wouldn't want to fight him, so they shot him. He got, he's dead now. But, but I still had that picture, and I had that memory. When I got that lesson that I wasn't in shape, I was just running my mouth off because I seen somebody that was respected, and I wanted that type of respect, and I was like considered a hater by saying, oh, he's all right. Ever since then, I walk around fighting or no fighting, retire almost three years at 185 pounds. In the middleweight division, 20 defenses, 12 years on top, holding that division down like Marvin Hagler did in this era. All comes from the lesson of that beating by country that always be ready. And that's part of my reputation, as you know. When you find Bernard Hopkins, you better be in shape because he's always in shape. And that came from that experience. I'll never forget it. And we're talking 30 plus years later. We're talking 88, 
and I, I returned back to society at 25. I turned pro at 25, which is considered late as a professional, as you know. And that there became my honor model. That, be, that became like one of the three important things that I must always, not sometimes, always, through any era of my times, up and down, in the middle, even life, always be ready. And that lesson sticks with me in 2020. Explain to people who are watching and maybe aren't familiar with everything about your backstory, the influence of Smokey Wilson. Wow. <laughs> you, you, that experience in Smokey was a... I was Smokey, but made the dream come true. Let me tell you why I said I was Smokey. Smokey had a chance to become me without even just knowing each other. And a life sentence changed that, as you know. And now he's released of the juvenile rights of courts of law. Smokey became my trainer at Greaterford. Smokey seen me running around the first year like a maniac, literally. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a thug was a nice name for me. I was beyond that because I felt that I had the reputation that I had to protect from the street. So I had to come in here and be very aggressive. Smokey talked to me about when he came in at a young age, around the same time I came in. And he had, a, I believe, a homicide. At the, yeah, he had a homicide with a life sentence in 77 or 76. 40 plus years before he got released, almost two years, two years now. And he kept saying, young kid, young kid, young guy. And my uncle knew Smokey, they fought. And he had a detached retina because my uncle named Artie McLeod, who was my mother's brother. And my father had a brother that fought too. So I got it in my DNA. And we connected that way. But Smokey stayed in my ear. He trained me, he ran, we boxed. And you gotta remember, young guys like myself, we always watch the old guys, we don't really trust them. It's the same thing I was telling you about the society we live in now. I talk to the young folks. They don't, they think a lot of us and the older ones are outdated. They, they, don't, they don't know who new different the way they think now. Good or bad. Just look at that as me and Smoke relationship. His age, where he's at, he's telling me, he reminds me of him, his net. He sort of lived through me while he still was facing, or no, still was serving a life sentence before he got out on a juvenile life sentence after having 30, almost 40 something years in, excuse me. So he got life of hope as he watched me on TV accomplish things on HBO. Can you imagine how great of a story that is? Yo, think about it. I mean, I don't know if you have any movie skills or, 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 or I know you have a personality to think like one. Think about that. Here's a young guy that's gone the same road that 
a lifer that was 14 or 15 or 16 who got certified with a life sentence, never to see the street again. I come through. I get lessons from him. I listen. Time go by. I get out. I stumble. I get back up. Stumble, I lose the first fight. That's stumbling. Staying off from 89 and 90 and fighting the demons in the street because fast money and drugs and everything was all over the place in every black city in America. Can you imagine the temptations? And I lost my first fight. But I still got nine years parole to walk off. And then eight years, and then seven years, then six years, then five years, four, three, two, one. Yo, that is very difficult to do in black America. If you're black in America and you're in the inner city with those strikes against you, you know and I know. And I'm not brave. This is not common by statistics. It's not common. Anybody hear this interview or see this interview? I'm not bragging. I'm not boastful. I want to encourage those out there, no matter what color, where you live, is that if I can find my strength and my talent, and even if I stumble, don't give up. Don't give up because as the warden told me, and this is well documented, and I know you heard this many times, you'll be back in six months. You ever heard that? Of course. And guess what? 30 plus years later, never let no one, never let no one write your destiny Especially when you don't put your destiny in no one's no one else's hand, and as is a judge or jury. Losing your professional debut, Bernard. How difficult was that to process at the time? Say that again, sir. Losing your professional debut. How difficult was that to process at the time? Well, if you look at how difficult it was losing the first fight in 88, I was off for two years. I was off 89 and 90. Very difficult. Because I could have got involved with what was, in pop, what was popular in the city of Philadelphia at that time. And mostly, mostly in, in the city. I had a choice to be part of the drug war and drug game, which would have been a war. Or back to the criminal-minded mentality because I was in the same facility, same era, same area, and a lot of peer pressure. But instead, I went to work at Penn Tower Hotel, breaking down the kitchen, cleaning kitchens in a hospital slash kitchen area. Then I worked at a roofing job. And then I met a Bowie Fisher, and my career took off from one to one and one, two and one, three and one, four and one. But if you look at my record, which you already have done before we did this interview, and we did many interviews together, 89 and 90 is a rough year. And people are starting to track, go back and look at my legacy because of the Hall of Fame, which was 
Saturday, I officially in the Hall of Fame because of the pandemic, we couldn't celebrate, but we celebrated next year. 21 and 20, we celebrate together. 89 and 90 was a make them and break them of Bernard Hopkins' life. Not by, forget by, look, box would have never happened if I wouldn't get, if I didn't get past those two years after the fight, after I lost my first fight with Clint Mitchell. 89 and 90 was challenging. I, listen, I thought about a lot of stuff. I second guessed a lot of stuff and I made the right move, obviously. But let me tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't a quick fix right away. That's why I didn't box for those years. Think about it. I didn't box for almost two years. And and, and, and a few people started to ask me about that because they started, my record, my career been so long, they started to look back like, what did you do in 89? Nothing. What did you do in 90? Nothing. But what happened? Now let's talk. Now let's talk. So, listen, man. Um... Nothing was based on love. I do believe in timing. But I believe in being steady and I believe in a lot of prayer, but also work. If you work more than you pray, I think that you will, you will be successful with anything you do. Praying is always good, but you got to work just as hard. And that's the key point. You mentioned Bowie Fisher. Just how instrumental was he in turning your career around and leading you on to the many successes that you had together? Oh, man. Yo, you're talking... Uh, Smokey, and again, I know you asked about Bowie. Smokey, to me, was handing the baton to Bowie, who's in society, who worked with fighters before me because of his age. The Georgie Bentons, the Benny Briscoes, the Cyclone Hart, and on and on. And Jesse Ferguson. Bowie Fisher was the professor, um, the principal. Bowie Fisher was the older guy. Like the, I remember the Kung Fu uh, karate shows to come on. I was grasshopper. And to me, I was all ears as much as I'm vocal, as much as I like to express my opinion. With Bowie, I was all ears. And that's another page of my success that I've accomplished because of Bowie's experience of being in that championship type of world and mindset and seen things and been there, done that and trained, been around every successful fighter in Philadelphia from the 60s, early 60s all the way up to my era. Bowie Fisher carried the baton through my success years and the best years of my career. And I had three careers. If you if you look at the numbers from 28 years boxing, which is almost three decades, I had three careers. And I even got three names. The Executioner, B-Hop, and The Alien. One for each career. It's good. That's how I look at it. 
With Louis, obviously you enjoyed a lot of success together, but there did come a point in time where you fell out. How difficult yeah. was that, and how how do you feel now he's gone, and how good do you feel that you were able to make it up before he did pass? Well, well let me tell you something. Um, we had our difficulties, and even before we split, we, we had always um, seen eye to eye, especially when it came to boxing. And I just think that when you have a chemistry amongst two people and it becomes more difficult when either on my end or his end, family is also involved, not only from a family advice or how family feel about me or him, his family or my family, they also is working with me also or in my group. And I just think that success brings on a lot of responsibility on both sides that most of us fail. I believe I have some failure in my life of doing things and not being sensitive to certain things. And I think that if Ruby was here and the sons are here, and I talk to James all the time, James Fisher, I don't mind saying it, his son is the youngest man. He's one of the one of the two that worked with me, and Andre Fisher, who recently just passed. He passed on. And, but the legacy the Hall of Fame in Philadelphia. You cannot, and I would not accept that honor unless Corey Fisher goes in with me. That's in Philadelphia because that's where he's from and that's the start. And they agree. And Corey Fisher and any other trainer that made that success with one fighter don't need 20, 30 fighters or four fighters to be eligible. Louis Fisher got me at 0-1 to all the success leading up to the Tito fight. And through fights after that, well, years of fights after that. But I, I wish that he could have began and ended my and with me in my long career. But it wasn't in the books to be like it started off. What did I learn out of that relationship? What did I learn to go forward out of that relationship? Let me tell you what I took a negative and turned into positive because when I was in this hospital room, and you might have read this. If you didn't, I'm probably, listen, you can call me back anytime and we can do this again. When I went to see Bowie at the hospital and his son and Andre and James was there and I saw shadow box. They said he wasn't up and didn't open his eyes for two days. He was medicated up and he was on and off fighting his cancer. And I'm shadow boxing. 
and he opened his eyes and looked. Couldn't speak, but he opened his eyes and he shook his head and he was shaking his head watching my feet. Andre and James was mentioning that on radio, TV, the whole night. It touched everybody. If I can say that in that situation, if I had to do that all again and he would be on his feet at home, not sick, it would have been better. But it wasn't my choice for that to be that way. And one or two lessons I learned that That everybody that start off with you, it's not necessarily they're going to end with you. And that, and, and let me say that, I learned that a long time ago. I learned that in relationships. And this ain't saying is anybody's fault. This says 50-50, everybody pays or, or contribute to success and also failure. And that's the same thing in life. The way you start off doesn't have to be the way you end. So I got a story about that also. The way I started off wasn't supposed to be an ending the way it is then. At least in sports, life still goes on for me, at least for right now. So I've learned those lessons and got something out of what will be or perceived as a failure at that moment. But it didn't linger on. I didn't let it linger on. I learned from those failures. I learned from them challenges. I learned from the good and the bad. I learned from the bad decisions I made, whether it's in business, whether it's in, in life decisions, whether it's in judgment of, of, of others before I got the chance or knowing it or they judged me. Long as I, I believe it's conscious. Conscious is what I think we lost in this country. If you're not conscious, you're not aware. You don't want to be. If that's where your state of mind is at. I hope I'm conscious in any decision that I have to make in life from now forward. So I won't hurt no one not knowing or knowing or not conscious of it. That's my checks and balances. That's my way of doing the right thing every time not sometimes every time because i was conscious to be conscious of knowing my choices now we've spoken about Smokey wilson we've spoken about billy fisher now the more recent boxing fans will reference nazim richardson and the work that you did together i was fortunate to sit down with uh brother nazim in december of 2018 in la and we spoke about his time with you. Just your opinion, really, on on your relationship with Nazim Richardson and and the journey that you went on together. Yeah, Nazim Richardson has been a protege under Bruce Fisher. I kept that circle. Nazim was more of the youth, even though Nazim is like a year younger than me, but Danny... Nazim is the youth when you put him and Fisher and in, in, in what Bowie was able to do or hold pads or physically uh, do things that Nazim was doing. So Nazim got groomed in that aspect from Bowie Fisher. 
So that's why that transition was very easy to have Nazim take that position because he basically, on the physical, in his own knowledge, Nazim, Nazim always got a conversation for you, as you know. <laughs> and he, 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 he comes across like a philosopher, but he knows the sweet science. Hey, there's two things people going to remember Nazim by. The hand wraps, the hand wraps, the hand wraps. That's three things. Even with Shane Mosley, with his fight. Correct? Yep. Okay. So, Nazim took... The baton was passed to Nazim from me, from Bowie, to be able to fill those shoes that he's already been groomed for before me and Bowie departed. That made me comfortable. That made Nazim comfortable. Now, some that didn't like what Nazim did, but Nazim had to feed his family, and he didn't want to take any sides, and that was a choice that Nazim made. But at the whole thing of training and fighting and, and being successful, Nazim, in my career, supposed to have been winding down, was winding down, and Nazim continued to be who he is. Trainers normally last longer than fighters, as you know. Moved on. The Golden Boy moved on. I chose to go with and partner and continue my relationship, which is 20-something years now with Oscar and Golden Boy. And Nazim went off with Shane Mosley and a few other fighters. Some from Philly, some under the Al Heyman's umbrella. And that's how we lost or understood you're on this end, I'm on, I'm on this end. And loyalty from which I presented myself to be on this side broke connections and conversations with Brother Nazim from there on. And I must say, it's been over five years that I haven't spoken or seen Nazim, but checked on Nazim through individuals who know both of us that he recently had a stroke, as you didn't know, he did have a massive stroke. And he's not fine, but he's not hes not where he were when he first had it. So he, he's, he's aware, but he still has some expensive therapy that he must continue till he get back to at least the Nazim that you and I know. I, I didn't know that, and... Um... You know, for anybody watching this, I, I'm sure they'll be joining in with my um, my well wishes, and I do wish all the best for Brother Nazim Richardson um, while he recovers, hopefully very quickly. Um, one of the things that we discussed, Bernard, is in the build-up to the Tito fight. Now, Nazim said that 
he said to you in the build-up to that fight that if you want to be pound for pound, you need to go through Trinidad. And you were of the opinion at the time that Trinidad hadn't fought anybody. And that he said that he could see the cogs turning in your head. That the more you spoke about Trinidad being a great fighter, the more that he watched tape on Trinidad looking good, that he could see it ramping up in your mind. Were you aware of that at the time? And is that what happened? Yes. Because we watched tapes together. And Nazim always was a teacher of breaking down uh, fights and things. And, you know, I became, through Bowie Fisher, one of those guys that loved to see my opponent, the good and bad about him, without. And, again, it's very difficult for a person who wants to see one side of a fighter that they're watching and not pay attention to his strength, but only pay attention to his weakness. Think about that. So you got to look at his strength. All around his foot movement, his positioning, uh, his hesitation if he hesitates before he do one or the other. Nazim and I had a field day. We love breaking down tapes and we always in a disagreement on the strategy on how this fight can be won. But when it's all said and done, I always listen to Nazim and add on to it. But it's our competitiveness, competitiveness, be competitive of both of us thinking we know more than each other. I don't know if it has something to do with the age. I don't know if it has nothing to do with, you know, I know he's qualified because he wouldn't be with me. But I'm just saying, no, I see a little something different. But then when it's, when it's game night or fight night, it kicks in. But we got to go through that, that course of, of training camp. Oh, we had some battles. Like, literally, no, you ain't listen to me. Listen. I'm the trainer. You got to listen to me. I see more than you outside the ring. And Najim was good in having quotes and soundbites. Swim without getting wet. What the hell that means? How can you swim without getting wet? If you're in the damn water and you swim and you caught to get wet, it's impossible not to get That's you in an empty pool. I know what that means. I know what that means. And, and those little things was code words that we had. But they also had combinations behind them if he had to write them down. Or I. But Nazim was a strategist and also a mental, mental type of trainer, psychological, get in your head and make you believe based on you working in camp, training and all that, that you can run through a wall and not have one bruise on you. Nazim told me that when he initially came up to you with the game plan and you spoke about how are we going to beat this guy, he said to you, we're going to use the jab. And he said that he, he, he said that initially you weren't sold on the idea. Do you remember that? So, come on, man. You're talking about if I don't remember that, why did I tell you we, we, we disagreed? <laughs> so, so listen, I haven't forgotten. That's why this interview is so fun, because you ain't telling this beforehand. You telling this after I speak. He's absolutely right. He had the jab, jab, jab. In, listen, in camp, in training, I had to tie one hand back and spoil somebody can fight. I was mad. I was getting hit. Listen, the first week in camp, I was getting hit because I had one hand and I had to 
had to use my jab, and he said, you have to survive and then win. I said, Nazim, I never heard anything. You sub- these are the sound bites. You talk to Nazim. He comes up with all these words, and you tell him, can you explain yourself? And he has an explanation. He's going to tell you what he means by that. I said, Nazim, this guy's a pro. He got 27 fights. Why do I got, it's not an amateur where I got to tie my hand behind my back. And Okay, I can see, okay, the guy's really green. This guy's tagging me. He said, you got to learn how to survive. So I had to learn how to get away and really not do much punching. And then when I got to, to the point where now I got to punch because I got to punch and strategize now with this one hand. Nazim had me one hand boxer for... It was eight weeks in training. I said for two weeks of training camp when we first started, I had to box a one-on with everybody. That means three rounds, four rounds, and two rounds with the last guy when I never leave the ring. Survive and then win. This is the mindset that some crazy man named Nazim Richardson had in his mind that I must survive first and then win. Now, and that was part of the strategy. We've mentioned Bowie Fisher. We've mentioned... Um... Nazim Richardson, we've also mentioned Georgie Benton. I mean, historically fantastic trainers, all from Philadelphia. A lot of people nowadays, it seems vogue for some trainers to talk about... I mean, Nazim is one of the the trainers who has said this. He said this to me, that there's there's a clear lack of teachers in the sport now. Do you agree with that, particularly when you consider the names that I've just mentioned? Yes, I say it all the time. But it's a lot of trainers. It's a lot of trainers, but no teachers. It's a difference. It's a big difference. Trainers everywhere. Trainers in every gym, whether it's a boxing gym or not. Trainers are in fitness gyms. There's a lot of trainers that think they're teachers. And to me, that's why you don't have the talent pool coming through for the Olympics and other things like we used to have back in the day because they're trainers but not teachers. And look, a lot of that is this father time. A lot of them are leaving. And the ones that was there to get the knowledge either didn't receive it, didn't care to receive it, or just not the breed of the past, the the error that, you know, they could have learned from. And and I don't have the patience to be the trainer, um, but I paid attention to the trainers. And I can give advice. I give my opinion. But I think my patience will ruin a fighter based on being a no-nonsense and taking them to the to to, to the end of the the road of, of, of being 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 successful. 